HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink, inspiring public curiosity about food. Learn more at mofad.org. When fame comes late, uh, I'm sure it's just as sweet as when it comes earlier. (laughs) What happens when culinary treasures thought lost to time are rediscovered years, if not centuries later? We'll find out in this week's Meet and Three. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler. This week, we're digging into the lost and found. With instant communication and the endless 24-hour news cycle, it can sometimes feel like all we care about is what's new. Today, we're bringing you stories about what's old. Food, drinks, and even some microbes kept alive by food enthusiasts around the world. We'll hear first from Pauline Munch with a story about two travelers hunting the globe for endangered dishes. As we move to more globalized societies, our access to traveling and tasting the world grows. But with this access, we risk homogenizing our cultures, traditions, and our food. From our grocery aisles to our dinner plates, what we are eating looks more similar than ever before. And this means that our regional foods and the histories they represent are being lost. But there are people dedicated to discovering and recovering the diversity in our food system. So my name is Leila Alamin, and I am one of the co-founders of The Recipe Hunters. Leila and co-founder Anthony Moreno travel the globe searching for traditional recipes and document these with photo and video journalism. Anthony and I, we are searching for what will be lost, and we're trying to rejuvenate it. And it's because we see how much culture and history goes into these and personal stories goes into these recipes. By gathering and sharing these threatened recipes, Anthony and Layla are ensuring that the people behind these heritage foods are heard. One woman that we met on this, you know, on this island off of Croatia, she was famous for making this this cake called the Hedapchosa Torta. And she was famous throughout the island and in, in her town. And, and when we went to go meet her, she invited us to make the cake with her. Without the recipe hunters, many of these special dishes and stories might not survive. I was a little perplexed as to why she would be sharing a secret recipe that actually no one on the island had her recipe. And she's like, well, to be honest, no one's asked me before, and when I die, it will die with me. 
And I think that Barbara, with his head up show, Satorta, it was the first time that we really were like, wow, this is a mission. Through their project, the recipe hunters have found more than just powerful stories and delicious food. For both Anthony and I personally, you know, we're um, first, second generation Americans. And for us traveling to our parents and our grandparents' home countries and rediscovering our cultures through food has been a way to, f to find ourselves in a world where uh, a lot of times we felt different and a little bit lost. You know, Anthony and I are both um, darker skinned and you know, we don't fit into the crowds necessarily that we grew up in. And so going back to our home, home countries, I guess, and like interacting with people based upon food was such a uh, immeasurable way of really connecting to what we had lost through generations. A more connected globe may endanger our traditional food ways, but it's also what lets Layla and Anthony do what they do best. Through travel, the recipe hunters protect and preserve the recipes and stories and help us get a true taste of our world. A lot of times we're like, no, globalization is killing our languages. It's killing our food heritage, um, our identity in a way. But I think that we have to work very hard to promote these cultures and, and really hold on to who we are, but at the same time, invite other people in. And the other thing about globalization that, you know, if we... If we do not lose our own identities through our cultural customs and our history, and we can hold on to that, and we can you know, be, be proud of that and practice that, but also integrate with other people and other nations and other uh, identities, it's so enriching. To see more of the incredible recipes and stories, check out www.therecipehunters.com and be sure to follow them on Facebook and Instagram. Our next story follows another explorer rescuing unique flavors from obscurity. Kat Johnson spoke with him on a recent trip to Savannah, Georgia. When I was a kid, I was obsessed with Indiana Jones. And I don't mean just obsessed with watching Temple of Doom on repeat, which I did at least a dozen times. No, I mean obsessed to the point where I owned the complete Young Indiana Jones Chronicles on VHS. Where am I going with this? Well, there's an intrepid professor that I want to introduce you to that has a lot in common with Indiana Jones. But instead of hunting for mythological artifacts, he hunts for bona fide agricultural treasures. He's on a mission to find seeds that many consider totally lost. But with tenacity and an expertly crafted Facebook post, he finds them again. There are numbers of corn varieties that are now being produced by just one person. Meet Dr. David Shields. By day, he's an English professor at the University of South Carolina. But beyond the walls of his classroom, he's known as the flavor saver to many in the slow food movement. To learn how he tracks down these seeds, I spoke to him at the Georgia Heritage Foods Revival in Savannah, Georgia. He had one particular seed on his mind, Cox's prolific corn. It was widely cultivated throughout the South. Um, because it was so prolific and so adaptable to different types of land. And then in the 1930s, for various reasons, it 
was supplanted, even among the old white corn varieties, because it grew on very terrible soil. Cox requires really good soil to, to perform well. Cox Prolific was extremely popular as a field corn, used for meal, roasting ears, and corn pudding. But as sweet corn became dominant in the U.S., many traditional varieties became obsolete. The low odds of finding Cox Prolific didn't stop Dr. Shields from logging onto Facebook to see if he could find someone, anyone, who still grew it. And I had been posting, uh, periodically I post a list of the 10 most wanted plants, you know, the lost plants that need being found. And after I uh, put up Cox Prolific in the top 10, I think it was number four, I got a call from Angie Lavezzo of Asheville. She's a seed person connected with So True Seed, the seed company up there, very fine seed company, um, saying, you know, just the other day I bought Cox Prolific, spelled C-O-X apostrophe S, and this corn, uh, the lost corn, is spelled C-O-C-K-E apostrophe S. Could it be the same? So I sent her photographs done at the early part of the 20th century of the corn. She said, you know, it looks good. Since the seeds had been purchased on Craigslist, Dr. Shields was able to track down the seller and then the grower. It turns out that uh, the actual cultivator was a man named Manning Farmer. He was 95 years old, living in Landrum. He had been growing the corn since the late 1940s, and his uncle had been growing it uh, at the same, in the same general area since the early 1930s when they bought it off the Hastings Seed Company in Atlanta. He's the only person in the United States who's growing this corn. The work didn't stop there. Dr. Shields distributed Cox Prolific to farmers who would grow it to ensure its continued survival. The Hickory Hill site down in Thompson, Georgia is growing it, and Geechee Boy, so it's, and Monticello. Uh, Thomas Jefferson's Monticello is growing it because it's the one corn that's really sort of connected with him in, in terms of field corn. There's an example of a lost corn that had extraordinary qualities, was found, and immediately is recognized as something that is a cherishable treasure. And growers want to get it, and uh, seed companies want to grow it. Dr. Shields has also helped track down African runner peanuts, purple ribbon sugarcane, and Bradford watermelons, just to name a few. Each seed represents a new adventure that involves research, travel, and sharing hidden stories of Southern foodways. But above all, Dr. Shields is on a mission to preserve and share flavors that would otherwise linger in obscurity. That is the ultimate payoff. To finish his tale of Cox Prolific, Dr. Shields recalled a Facebook post he'd read earlier that day. It was written by Bob Perry, a chef and foods lab coordinator at the University of Kentucky, who'd been doing some culinary R&D with the corn. Today he posted a picture on Facebook. Are uh, tortillas made of Cox Prolific corn good? No, they're excellent. <laughs> we'll be back with more Meat and 3 after this. This episode is brought to you by MoFad. 
the Museum of Food and Drink. Featuring a variety of interactive displays, MOFAD encourages eaters of all ages to be curious about food. The museum currently operates MOFAD Lab, a 5,000-square-foot experimental space in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where Chow, making the Chinese-American restaurant, is currently on show. This exhibition celebrates the birth and evolution of Chinese-American restaurants, tracing their nearly 170-year history and sparking conversations about food culture, immigration, and what it means to be American. It highlights the evolution timeline of Chinese-American restaurant menus, dating back to 1910, and also highlights a tasting section where participants get to enjoy tastings created by the country's most talented chefs who specialize in Chinese-American cuisine. Check out MOFAD's tastings and extensive event calendar at mofad.org events. Welcome back to Meet in 3. Our next story is also about the quest to preserve our food system's biodiversity, but we shift our attention from seeds to bacteria and one of my favorite microbes, yeast. For almost as long as humans have cultivated grain, we've made bread. Our ancestors discovered that by harnessing the bacteria naturally occurring all around us, they could make tangy, airy bread that we now know as sourdough. Any serious sourdough baker will possess their own special starter, a magical heap of flour, water, and microbes with its own genetic profile and distinctive terroir. The baker's hands, or whatever's blowing in the wind, can transform the makeup of each starter. Making sourdough bread and keeping a starter alive is no easy task. Meet Carl Desmet who gave a talk at the International Symposium on Bread in 2018. I feel pity for the bakers because these kind of artists, those guys are slaves from their sourdough because they cannot sleep longer than three hours in a row because they have to feed it. Yeah? Here Carl was summarizing a quote from Augustin Parmentier, a pharmacist who lived during the 18th century. People were looking for something that would make the, the bread-baking business easier. Different people in France and Austria were looking for, for yeast. Yeah? And everything came together with the guy in the middle, Louis Pasteur, who wrote his PhD on the alcoholic fermentation, and he opened the way to the production of baker's yeast. In the 19th century, baker's yeast made baking bread a lot easier. Thanks to its quick rising time, a loaf of bread could be made from start to finish in a mere three hours drastically increasing productivity. But if this episode has taught you anything so far, it's that with gained convenience, we often lose vital stories, flavors, and biodiversity. Carl DeSmet was not about to let the history of sourdough be lost. In 2013, he helped open the Puratos Sourdough Library in St. Vith, Belgium. We host a collection today of 103 sourdoughs, from um, 20 countries. It's a nice mashup from different continents, and it's an amazing thing. The purpose of the, of the library is to protect the biodiversity of sourdough. If tomorrow a bakery would stop with its activities, if there would be a fire, if someone would make a mistake and throw its sourdough away, which happens, then it might be lost for the future. What we try to do is collect these sourdoughs that contribute 
to the biodiversity of sourdough in order to store them, to document them, and be able to preserve them for the future. Each sourdough submitted to the library has its DNA analyzed and its origin story preserved. A story from a particular moment in time. Number 100. I went last year in April to, uh, to Japan, city of Tokyo, and there is a bakery uh, who gave their sourdough to the collection. And it's made from rice. It is a sourdough made by Mr. Kimura. He was one of the last samurai dating back to 1873. At this point in history, Japan was experiencing a shift from the feudal system to the imperial system. The samurai, they, they needed to find a new job. And some of them became carpenters and, uh, and blacksmiths and so on. And this guy decided to become uh, a baker. Some sourdough starters can be used to map human migration in the modern world. This starter is from a, a guy here, Will, Will Grant from uh, Seattle. So we started looking into it and, yeah, it's a sourdough that originates from the Klondike Gold Rush. So it's a starter from 80, uh, 1917 or something like that. And then a little bit later, I discovered a sourdough from Whitehorse in Canada. And it's probably the oldest sourdough starter from Canada, from a lady called Iona Christensen. And um, she has the sourdough from her great-great-great-grandmother, dating back to 18. 97, also from the Klondike. Each sourdough starter is a living snapshot of a time and place where it was made and carries the microbial imprint of its maker. Its story is revealed in the flavor of the bread made with it, bringing bakers and eaters closer to our diverse culinary history. To hear Carl Desmet's full talk at the International Symposium on Bread and learn more about the history of sourdough, go to heritageradionetwork.org slash dough. Our last story this week finds a culinary treasure preserved not in a library, but more than 130 feet under the sea. Almost 30 years before the Titanic sank, another high-speed luxury liner went down on its way from England to New York City. The SS Oregon, which collided with a sailboat and sank just off of Fire Island. Uh, I've been diving this wreck since I was 18 years old, and it happened to be one of the loves of uh, my life, diving this wreck. This is Captain Pat Rooney, talking with host Jimmy Carboni on Beer Sessions Radio. Uh, the backstory on this wreck, it sank in 1886 in 130 feet of water. Captain Pat and his team have uncovered lots of historic artifacts from the 518-foot wreck. Brass portholes, long tailcoats, crystal glassware. But the real treasure isn't a collector's item. It's a brewing ingredient. Yeast, salvaged from sealed beer bottles on board. They were corked, they had beer in them, and uh, the reason why they were so valuable was where they were. Jamie Adams runs St. James Brewery a farm brewery on Long Island, known for its Belgian-style beers. He's also an avid scuba diver and part of the team working to salvage the bottles. They were stuck in the mud. The mud, this, this mud, was actually keeping them uh, intact, keeping somewhat of a pressure on it, but that would keep the cork in, but at the same time uh, not uh, uh, applying so much pressure that it would uh, crack the bottles. The next step was to get the 130-year-old bottles out of 130 feet of water without breaking them. 
We don't want to jostle it around too much. We don't want it to have any accidents on the extension, anything like that. And once you get it to the surface, you really want to keep it uh, cold and you want to keep it out of the sunlight. Once they were made it topside, though, they couldn't just drink it. Although these bottles were corked uh, and everything that, that came along, they were, were well preserved under the seafloor, uh, there was some saltwater intrusion, and it's inevitable that there's uh, some stuff that's going to get in there. So it was our job, really, to, uh, at first, separate the yeast from all of the other ancillary uh, things that were, that were there. Isolating the yeast takes many steps. We don't pour the beer out. We open up the bottle and we, uh, we uh, stick an apparatus into the bottle, which will uh, basically pull some of the yeast out from, from the bottom. Uh, it's just a little piece of metal. It's got a loop on the bottom and it'll just, it'll just pull off the, the yeast. And what we would do is we would uh, plate the yeast successively, petri dish to petri dish, finally getting a, a somewhat clean culture that we could then uh, isolate one single stra- uh, yeast cell from. At first, Jamie wasn't sure which side of the Atlantic the beer came from. Was it an English ale or a German-influenced American brew? But once we started to brew with the beer, uh, almost immediately it was clear through the, uh, the smell, the taste, how the, beer, how the yeast performed, that this was English, uh, English yeast. Beer writer and historian Pete Brown called into the beer session's conversation to talk about what beers would have been popular at the time. He thinks the beer was most likely an English IPA. Uh, these beers would have been... At the time, they would have been uh, referred to as IPA, uh, probably quite different than the IPA that we, we're familiar with now, though. Whereas we now kind of love fresh, hoppy flavors, these beers were designed to age and the kind of lovely, fresh, vibrant aromas that we like now in these beers. They would have considered them uh, too, too, too fresh, too raw, uh, not ripened yet. So they were kind of waiting for these flavors to kind of die down uh, and age, which, which they did on the journey. Jamie's been working on using this 19th century British yeast to brew a new line of beers called Deep Ascent. After making a successful test batch last year, St. James will start selling Deep Ascent beers this May. So this is our second beer, which we are selling to the public. It's called Fleur de Lis. Um, uh, so our Fleur de Lis is, uh, this was a crossroads. We decided to make this beer in more of a Belgian IPA style to take advantage of the, of the flavor profile that, that this English yeast uh, afforded to us, but also to uh, get the uh, attenuation characteristics of our, of our house Belgian yeast. Jamie, Captain Pat, and their team are excited to bring a piece of history to beer drinkers. Captain Pat says that as a kid, he hated history so much that he would often skip class. Now I can't get enough of history. It's bringing back the history and just being part of that time that just, it's, there's nothing like it. You know, there's, there's nothing like it. You can hear more about wreck diving and English beer history from Pete, Jamie, Captain Pat, and the diving team on episode 470 of Beer Sessions Radio, Shipwreck Yeast. Well, that's our show. Special thanks this week to Aaliyah Papes and Pauline Munch for their reporting. Meet and Three is produced by Hannah Fordin, Liza Hamm, Kat Johnson, and me, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with lead production for this episode by Aaliyah Papes. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York State Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and Three is a production of Heritage Radio Network the world's pioneer food podcast network. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio.